This is The Guardian. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian Archive Long Read. I'm Patrick Barkham, I'm natural history writer for The Guardian, and I'm the author of The Real David Attenborough, a long read that was published in 2019. I've been a journalist for 20 years and people always ask me, who's the most famous person you've interviewed? And the answer, I've met plenty of prime ministers and I've met Charles and William and Harry, but the answer's always David Attenborough. And I'd always wanted to sit down and have a proper chat with him I went to meet him at his home in the spring of 2019 and he answered the door and he looked much like any other freelancer working from home. He was slightly dishevelled and wearing a big brown jumper and we sat for a couple of hours and had a conversation that formed the basis for this long read which is a profile of him exploring his impact and his extraordinary life and of course the issue of how vigorously he's campaigned for measures to be taken against the destruction of of the natural world. There were a couple of impressions that I had from meeting him that have really stayed with me and the main one really was his mental acuity and his, his vigor of intellect. He was 92 when I met him and he was so sharp And he was so quick to respond and question me and, you know, interrogate my questions. And he was very good humoured as well. And he really is a great storyteller. And he tells lovely stories. And he has a great breadth of interests. He's a polymath. And I think people think of him as being this nature god. But he's actually a collector of art. He's incredibly musical and he has enormous musical knowledge and his whole house is like this glorious library filled with books and music and art. He's a a genuine renaissance person. In the four years since I wrote the piece, really not much has changed and David's life is the same and the challenges that he's talking about are the same. Since then he's appeared before COP26 in Glasgow, the climate summit. He gave an amazing impassioned speech that opened that summit. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline. In yours, you could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delegates, excellencies, 
It's why the world is looking to you. And David's still working. He's now, as we speak, he's coming up to 97. And last summer, in the summer of 2022, he went out on location across the British Isles to film his latest series, which is called Wild Isles. And friends say that this will probably be the last time that he's actually appearing as a presenter on camera. I hope David continues to work for many months and years yet, but I also really hope that we start to act and really take heed of the warnings that he's become increasingly strong at giving in the latter years of his life. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The Real David Attenborough by Patrick Barkham In the late 1980s, a meeting was convened at the BBC studios on White Ladies Road in Bristol. Its participants, mainly amiable former public schoolboys named Mike, discussed the imminent retirement of a grey-haired freelancer who had been working with the BBC for almost four decades. We need to think about who is going to take over from David when this series is finished, a junior producer Mike Gunton remembered his boss saying. David Attenborough was nearing 65 and putting the finishing touches to The Trials of Life, the third of his epic series about the natural world. These programmes had been broadcast around the globe. They had established a new genre, perhaps even a new language of wildlife films. It was a fine legacy. Now it was time to go. When Alistair Fothergill became head of the BBC Natural History Unit a few years later, executives were still worrying over the same question. The BBC Director-General asked him to find a new David Attenborough. I remember thinking... That's not very sensible, said Fothergill. He has always been this great oak tree under which it's been hard for a sapling to grow. Today, Mike Gunton has ascended the ranks to become creative director of the Natural History Unit. He still attends meetings on White Ladies Road, but three decades after the subject was first broached, finding the next David Attenborough is no longer on the agenda. We still haven't got an answer, and I don't want one, Gunton told me. Attenborough was born on the 8th of May, 1926, 17 days after the Queen. And, like the Queen, he has become a symbol of stability in a turbulent world. It is hard to imagine a time before he was on our screens, affably engaging with sloths or giant turtles, partly because there wasn't. Television was invented the year after he was born, and only began to enter people's homes in the 1950s, when he was beginning his career. The first programme he made was watched by barely 10,000 people gazing at 405 flickering black and white lines on large boxes in living rooms in the southeast of England. This spring, his series Our Planet became Netflix's most watched original documentary, watched by 33 million people in its first month. This autumn, the BBC will broadcast Seven Worlds, One Planet, the 19th blockbuster series he has written and presented. At a zero and then some, if also counting his pre-70s series, short series and one-offs. The television executives who keep offering this 93-year-old freelancer bountiful employment agree that he is more powerful than ever. 
Attenborough and the Queen are more than just contemporaries. I see them quite a lot, Attenborough said of the royal family when I met him at his home in Richmond earlier this year. He first encountered the Queen's children, Charles and Anne, in 1958, when they toured the BBC's Lime Grove Studios, and the young presenter introduced them to his pet cockatoo, Cocky. In 1986, the year after Attenborough was knighted, he produced the first of six Christmas broadcasts for the Queen. Earlier this year, he was interviewed by Prince William on stage at Davos. The future king asked him for advice on how best to save the planet. In our fractured age, Attenborough is the closest we have to a universally beloved public figure. Last year, a YouGov poll found him to be the most popular person in Britain. The crowd at Glastonbury's Pyramid Stage roared when he appeared on stage this summer. Viewers of Love Island expressed outrage when one contestant declared she found his programmes boring. But Attenborough transcended national treasure status some years ago. He is a truly global figure now. So many Chinese viewers downloaded Blue Planet 2 that it temporarily slowed down the country's internet, according to the Sunday Times. The premiere of his new series, which took place earlier this month in London, was broadcast live in South Africa and India, where rapt schoolchildren held up signs, Thank you for being you, Sir David A. and Sir David, please come to India, please. As he moves from the White House to the World Economic Forum, urging presidents, business people and the public to better protect the environment, he has come to be viewed in a way he sees as overblown, as a keeper of humanity's conscience. That man who saves the world is how my seven-year-old daughter describes him. There will never be another David Attenborough. What makes him special, apart from all his personal qualities, is the timing of his life, said Fothergill. When Attenborough began travelling the world in the 1950s, Fothergill noted, we were in a different geological epoch, the Holocene. Today we live in the Anthropocene, an epoch defined by Homo sapiens' disruptive dominance of the planet. He's seen more of the natural world than any human being that has ever lived on the planet, and he's also seen more change than anyone else, and he feels a responsibility. Despite the adulation, one charge has dogged Attenborough for decades. Critics argue that he has built himself a unique storytelling platform only to fail to tell the most important story of all, the destructive impact of people on the planet. But one reason Attenborough has thrived on screen for seven decades is because he has always sensed how attitudes are changing and moved with the times. For a long time, he maintained that his programmes must showcase the wonders of the natural world and not speak of the human one. Now, his newest series are filled with urgent messages about environmental destruction. Still, he resists the idea that he has changed. He prefers to say that it is the public mood that has transformed. After a lifetime of caution, almost despite himself, he has become a leading champion for action. Attenborough fell in love with the natural world as a boy, exploring his way through his neighbourhood in Leicester, looking for bugs, insects and amphibians. The middle child of three brothers, he grew up in a family of teachers. His father was principal of University College Leicester. His mother was a talented pianist. Education was revered. When I met Attenborough in the spring, he spoke of his boyhood passions, keeping tanks of tropical fish, venturing across northern England on his bike as a young teen, alone in search of fossils. To this day, Attenborough is still a collector of tribal art, books and music, 
But although more than a dozen species are named after him, including a flightless weevil, Trigonopterus attenboroughi, and a genus of dinosaur, Attenboroughsaurus, he is not an authority on natural history. Everyone thinks he's an amazing naturalist, said the producer and writer Mary Colwell, who worked with him at the Natural History Unit in the 2000s. He isn't at all. He's a great storyteller. Everyone thinks he makes these programmes. He doesn't. But without him, they wouldn't sparkle in the way they do. Attenborough agrees. Work and reputation get separated, he said. Forty years ago, he travelled around the world three times in order to make his groundbreaking series Life on Earth. He wrote the script and every page of the accompanying book. But now I just write and speak the words, and people say, what was it like when you saw that animal charging in? And I say, I wasn't there. Thirty cameramen worked on this thing. I'm given credit for things I don't do. I am grateful, but I'm also embarrassed. It is even worse, he said, when viewers assume he is a source of scientific wisdom. OK, I was a biologist once, but I'm a hopeless birder. If I go out with a birder, I keep my mouth shut. I just nod. Hmm, hmm. So to use a horrible word, I've become a kind of icon. Using it in its original meaning, I'm the image of what they think of as a naturalist. I'm a reasonable naturalist, but I'm not the great all-seeing source of all information, knowledge and understanding. At times, Attenborough's self-deprecation almost sounds like imposter syndrome. When I asked him to list his failings as a person, he narrowed his eyes. I'm too convincing, he laughed, comparing his own expertise unfavourably to other wildlife broadcasters, such as Simon King and Liz Bonin. When it comes to, as it were, conning your way through, I'm not bad at it. Never identify things unnecessarily. Even so, plenty of colleagues recall Attenborough relishing his ability to surprise them with his knowledge. Johnny Keeling, the executive producer of Seven Worlds, One Planet, was excited to show his presenter never-obtained-before footage from China of a golden snub-nosed monkey. Oh yes, Rhinopithecus roxolana, remembered Attenborough instantly. He knew all about it and had tried to film it many years before. The only praise Attenborough will accept is for his skill as a storyteller. Robert Attenborough, David's son and an anthropologist at the University of Cambridge, remembered as a teenager watching him in the raconteur role as a host of a dinner party and admiring the skill with which he would tell a funny story. Sometimes they get slightly improved. That's something we used to tease him about. Of course, he wouldn't do that then or now when making a serious point. Attenborough's storytelling has been honed over seven decades in television, and he is, above all, a TV man. After studying natural sciences at Cambridge, he married his university sweetheart, Jane Oriel, and ditched his boring junior publishing job for the glamorous new world of television. He started off behind the camera after one of his first bosses decided his teeth were too big for a presenter. In 1954, Attenborough travelled to Sierra Leone with Jack Lester, London Zoo's curator of reptiles, to film a new series, ZooQuest. The concept was simple. They would catch wild animals. Their bounty from Sierra Leone included pythons, bird-eating spiders and their big prize, the bald-headed rockfowl, and bring them back to London to add to the zoo's collection. At the outset, Attenborough was the producer, director, soundman and animal wrangler. He only ended up being the presenter because Lester was taken ill after the first episode. ZooQuest was broadcast in black and white, but the original colour footage, which was later discovered by BBC archivists, is beautiful. Attenborough narrates his encounters in clipped 1950s BBC-issued received pronunciation, with little trace of his more expressive later style. Although the colonial animal-snatching conceit of ZooQuest is extremely dated, 
Each episode focuses as much on the human worlds he visits as the exotic animals. Attenborough's script is factual, respectful and open-minded. His films unsensationally depict nudity, polygamy and other cultural traditions alongside the animal hunt. Over the next few years, new series of ZooQuest appeared and Attenborough's reputation grew. With his keen eye for the perceptions of his TV audience, he adapted cannily to a rapidly expanding industry. By the dawn of the 60s, as he admitted in his autobiography, ZooQuest was looking increasingly antiquated. He realised that it was time for a new approach. His next Quest series, filmed in northern Australia, eschewed attempts to bring animals home and instead depicted the cultural lives of Aboriginal peoples. The trip to Australia inspired him to take a part-time postgraduate degree in anthropology, but he was tempted back to full-time TV work before he could complete it. In 1965, he became controller of BBC Two, an appointment greeted with scepticism by TV professionals quoted in newspaper columns of the day. At first he was considered lightweight, a youthful bit of eye candy, but he was soon hailed for his unexpected success, as a Daily Express profile put it. Everybody forgot I wasn't just a naturalist. I was always a trained TV man, he told the paper in 1965. Hell, I love it. I watch everything. Straight home from the office, switch to BBC Two, see all my babies. As the channel's controller and then director of programmes for both BBC channels, Attenborough was a great innovator. In 1967, the government decided that BBC Two would become the first channel to switch to colour, and he set about exploiting this advantage. He put snooker on the channel and helped devise new forms of sport, one-day cricket and rugby league under floodlights. Programmes that emerged under his watch include Dad's Army, Porridge and Monty Python's Flying Circus. In 1972, he championed community programming that included what has been described as the first sympathetic portrayal of transgender people on British television. He even suggested phone-ins to widen audience participation, years before they became a staple of TV and radio. One of his lasting innovations was the all-you-need-to-know documentary, beginning with Kenneth Clark's Civilization. Ruskin said... Great nations write their autobiographies in three manuscripts. Attenborough designed this epic 12-part series about the history of art and culture to showcase the glory of colour television. These monumental series became known as sledgehammers, and there followed uncompromisingly highbrow treatments of human evolution, economics and US history. But Attenborough believed the best subject for sledgehammer treatment was yet to come. Natural history. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question... If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? 
A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Attenborough's achievements at BBC Two made him a prime candidate for Director General, the top job at the corporation. But he was tiring of the senior executive's life, desk-bound, constant meetings, and in the early 70s he resigned. The fact he didn't want to stay as an executive and wanted to go back to programming says something very important about him, his son Robert told me. Attenborough yearned to be more creative and had seen the thankless politics involved in the top job. The Archangel Gabriel couldn't do the DG's job, he remarked to me. Instead, he persuaded the BBC that he could create a civilization-style treatment of the evolution of plants and animals. This series took three years to make, and the budget was so big that Attenborough had to pitch to US networks for funding. He still enjoys impersonating a sceptical American TV man, aghast at the prospect of funding a series that opened with slime mould. Life on Earth was broadcast for 55 minutes on 13 consecutive Sunday evenings in 1979. It started quietly, according to Mike Salisbury, a former producer who worked on the programme. Despite the presence of a safari-suited Attenborough, binoculars around his neck skipping between exotic locations, the early episodes often feel like a lecture with moving pictures. A handsome presenter tries to make the best of diagrams of DNA, microorganisms and 200-million-year-old fossils. A whole lot of worms have left this delicate tracery of trails in what was mud, he enthuses in the Grand Canyon. Salisbury chuckled at the difficulty of bringing this to life on television. Fossils, for God's sake, they don't even move. But as its epic story slowly unfolds, the series warms up. The writing is often superb. Four million animals and plants in the world, says Attenborough. Four million different solutions to staying alive. The penultimate episode on primates features the first memorable Attenborough two-shot, where he appears alongside another animal. He joins a grooming session among mountain gorillas in Rwanda and still has the presence of mind to whisper, there is more meaning and mutual understanding in exchanging a glance with a gorilla than any other animal I know. Although some facts have changed, we now know there are more than 8 million species, not 4 million, the series stands the test of time. One Cambridge professor still shows his undergraduates the primates episode each year. For old-timers at the BBC, history is divided into before and after life on Earth. 
We hadn't realised what a game-changer it was going to be, said Salisbury. By the end, there were 14 million people watching it. The series established what television executives call the blue-chip natural history blockbuster. While the BBC has relinquished its dominance over most genres, it remains the preeminent maker of natural history programmes, according to Fothergill. So much of that is down to David, he said. Much imitated, these blockbusters are still a huge global export. The BBC will not reveal what profit, if any, these series make, but Planet Earth 2 and Blue Planet 2 were sold to more than 235 territories. After the success of Life on Earth, Attenborough spent much of the 80s completing what became a triumvirate of blue-chip behemoths, with the living planet exploring ecology and the trials of life revealing animal behaviour. He also turned his attention to series about less fashionable subjects, plants, spiders, stick insects and other invertebrates. Audiences liked his enthusiasm, his quick wit and his affection for animals, already evident from his early days bottle-feeding a tiny African bushrat in ZooQuest. From Natural History Unit veterans such as Salisbury to colleagues today, everyone paints the same picture of Attenborough in the field, a team player, carrying kit, energetic, curious, without vanity, funny, not suffering fools and preternaturally lucky. Everyone has a story about him joining a crew that has lucklessly staked out a target species for two weeks, only for that creature, whether Hungarian mayfly or polar bear, to suddenly hove into view. I don't like presenters on the whole. I don't think they are particularly nice people, one producer told me. But Attenborough was different. He's not a prima donna. He's not an ego on a stick. He doesn't need to be now. By the early 80s, Attenborough's programmes had been broadcast around the world and he became recognised wherever he went. But he was not yet, to use another label that vexes him, a global superstar. Until recently, when Attenborough's series were shown on US television, broadcasters would replace his narration with voices they thought an American audience would prefer. In 2010, when Life was broadcast in the US, Oprah Winfrey was the narrator. Viewers tend to assume Attenborough writes every word he says on screen, while TV people think his lines are written for him. The truth is somewhere in between. Attenborough's scripts are written by production teams, but he is an unusually rigorous editor and rewriter. Even today, Attenborough rewrites each script to fit his own turn of phrase and checks for accuracy. If I send him a script, he goes through it with a fine-tooth comb, more than any other presenter, said Mary Colwell. His attention to detail is incredible, and he won't say anything he doesn't want to say. When filming, according to Mike Gunton, Attenborough does not learn his lines precisely. He looks at it and comes back and says, what do you think if I say it like this? His turn of phrase and the way he delivers these turns of phrase, it's got such power. He has the same genes as his brother, meaning Richard, the Oscar-winning actor-director who died in 2014. I've often said he's as good a performer as his brother, Gunton said. You change the pace. You change the timbre, you change the mood, and the commentary has organic flow, Attenborough told me. If the last sentence ended ten seconds ago rather than one minute ago, you start in a different kind of way. I don't think other people do that. It's a craft, and I quite enjoy it, actually. It looked enormous, and from its size and markings, I was quite sure that it was a python. His colleagues think his voice has improved with age, if you go back to the older programmes, even on Blue Planet from 2001, 
It's quite a clip voice, said Fothergill. A tiny island lost in the midst of the Pacific. It's, it's now the voice of an older man, but it's become even more powerful, with a timbre and an emotional resonance. We are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we are doing to the planet. By his own admission, it took some time for Attenborough to realise just what a threat humankind posed to the environment. When he was younger, he said, people knew of species that had gone extinct, such as the Arabian oryx and the dodo, but you didn't perceive it as a major ecological problem. And in point of fact, let's be honest, if the Hawaiian goose disappears, the world doesn't actually judder in its revolutions. It wasn't until life on Earth that he came to see that species decline was systemic, and actually the disappearance of the giant panda represented some major change. For most of his life, Attenborough's environmentalism has been the old-fashioned off-screen variety, lending his support to numerous green charities. Ever since he was asked as a bit of a joke to open a visitor centre at a nature reserve by the village of Attenborough in Nottinghamshire in 1966, he has given rousing speeches, I have seen several, at hundreds of events for nature charities across Britain. It is hard to find a visitor centre at a Wildlife Trust nature reserve that does not feature a silver plaque declaring that it was opened by Sir David Attenborough. To his critics, these good deeds do not make up for what they see as Attenborough's great failing as a broadcaster. Putting the case for the prosecution, the journalist George Monbiot has accused Attenborough of knowingly creating a false impression of the world by making films that underplay humanity's impact on the planet and fail to identify the forces driving mass extinction and the climate crisis. Another environmentalist told me that Attenborough possesses irreproachable integrity, but his long silence on extinction and global warming in his television work has contributed towards a popular knowledge deficit. Richard Maybe, a naturalist who worked in television before almost single-handedly reviving British nature writing, has long made a version of this argument. When Life on Earth came out in 1979 and The Living Planet five years later, I was concerned about the fact that this wasn't a place I recognised, Maybe told me. What one saw was magnificent, but it was what one didn't see. No humans, no environmental degradation. It was like an idealised biosphere on another planet. Once, in the early 80s, Maybe bumped into Attenborough at a lunch. I asked him, genuinely curious, why this picture of the planet was so devoid of environmental strife. He said, very simply, we wouldn't have got the viewers, they would have turned off. I was quite distressed. TV executives repeat Attenborough's argument today. A blue-chip series costs millions to produce and requires global funding. BBC programme makers are terrified of being seen as political. At the launch of Seven Worlds, One Planet, Keeling insisted that it's not preachy. As Miles Barton, a long-standing Attenborough producer, put it, the more preachy you are, the lower the numbers are going to be. The lower the numbers, the less money the series will make, the less funding for the next. Maybe understood this equation. Attenborough has power over the audience, he said. I'm not sure he has power over the money men. My initial worry about him not including environmental disasters in his early series may have been less his personal choice than corporate pressure. As a young producer, it was drilled into Attenborough that private convictions must not be aired in public. He has always upheld the values of the liberal establishment, avowedly internationalist and anti-populist in his veneration of expertise, 
and taken the traditional BBC line on party political neutrality. I'm not a political chap. I know about bugs, he protested, when asked about Brexit in 2017. When pushed, he revealed that he voted to remain. Like most in the Natural History Unit, Attenborough has also long defended his work with a show-the-wonders-and-then-people-will-care argument. When we spoke earlier this year, Attenborough put it more bluntly. People ought to be concerned because they think the natural world is important. If they know nothing about the natural world, they won't care a toss. To a sympathetic observer, the lack of campaigning films in Attenborough's oeuvre might look like a canny political calculation about the most effective way to shift popular opinion over the long term. But it may just reflect his temperament. I made natural history programmes not because I was a rampaging proselytizer preaching about conservation, he told me. I like looking at animals and seeing what they do. Attenborough praises more outspoken broadcasters such as Chris Packham. Chris is to be admired, actually, because he would sacrifice his career in the name of something that he thought was important about conservation. He would, and more strength to his elbow, he said. But that is not Attenborough's way. He acknowledged that he would probably not ever risk getting banned from the BBC. In public, he has always been reserved. Journalists have often noted his refusal to emote in interviews. This image of an emotionally repressed English gentleman, a man of his era, is not his private self at all, says his son. I regard him as an exception to all the rules of English maleness, said Robert. In personal life, he's not shy with his emotions. I would not see him as a classic English male in that sense. He's a warmer person, a more expressive person than that. When Attenborough's wife, Jane, died 20 years ago, his grief was intense and fully expressed, remembered Robert. Even so, his public reticence and natural caution have made the final stage of his career all the more striking. In November 2004, nearly 20 years after the phrase global warming was first coined, Attenborough attended a lecture in Belgium given by Ralph Cicerone, an American expert on atmospheric chemistry. The graphs that Cicerone presented, showing the rise in global temperatures, finally convinced Attenborough beyond any doubt that humans were responsible for the changing climate. Attenborough insists he was never a sceptic about man-made climate change, just cautious. Even after Cicerone's lecture, he still believed his job was to make programmes about wildlife. He worried that people would think he was setting himself up as an expert on climate science. Attenborough's output changed, however. This distinction may mystify those beyond the Natural History Unit, but its filmmakers distinguish between natural history and environmental filmmaking. The former focus on animal or plant biology and behaviour. The latter address environmental issues. Attenborough's 2006 BBC two-parter The Truth About Climate Change was his first to address global warming explicitly. Three years later came How Many People Can Live on Planet Earth, which reflected his long-standing concern over the rising human population. Attenborough's position incurred criticism from some who argued he was focusing more on environmental harm caused by poorer nations rather than overconsumption by wealthier populations. This year came a new Attenborough BBC documentary, Climate Change, The Facts. Next year, the BBC will broadcast another, Extinction, The Facts. The arrival of Blue Planet 2 in 2017 heralded a new urgency to Attenborough's blockbusters. 
helping transform popular attitudes towards waste and pollution with its images of plastic enveloping a turtle and albatrosses unwittingly feeding plastic bags to their chicks. When I interviewed Attenborough this spring, his Netflix series Our Planet had not yet been released. It was billed as a significantly more pressing appeal to save the world, and Fothergill, its producer, was keen to assert its environmental credentials. Attenborough, meanwhile, seemed equally keen to assert that it wasn't so different to his earlier work. If you forget the flummery and the propaganda and the press releases, what does it do? It shows the most breathtaking sequences you've ever seen. Beauty, wonder, spectacles filmed in a way that you never saw before, with drones and in fabulous colour, with surging music and so on. And then at the end, it says it's all in danger. That's what they do. I'm not ashamed of that. I think it's a perfectly valid thing. But the strange thing when you sat down to watch Our Planet was that it did not match Attenborough's billing. Each episode began with him discussing the moon landing. Since then, the human population has more than doubled, his voiceover continued. This series will celebrate the natural wonders that remain and reveal what we must preserve to ensure that people and nature thrive. The series returned relentlessly to this manifesto. It explained the importance of rainforest for a habitable climate, and almost no stunning sequence of wild animals came without Attenborough emphasising the precariousness of their continued existence. Likewise, in Seven Worlds, One Planet, the environmental messages are no longer restricted to an appeal at the end of each episode. The first story about the impact of climate change comes 16 minutes into the opening episode. Throughout, there are sequences that highlight the human actions, climate change, pollution, habitat destruction, poaching, causing Earth's sixth great planetary extinction. We are a behavioural wildlife show, and we've got a whole sequence without an animal in it. That's a remarkable change, said the series producer, Scott Alexander. This shift in Attenborough's work reflects a response by filmmakers, and particularly the Natural History Unit, to accusations that they have pulled punches in the past. Yet, as his protestations suggest, being environmental has not come easily to Attenborough. I don't think he's naturally an environmentalist at all, said one former colleague. He's not eloquent when it comes to environmentalism. But you can't take away his intelligence, his understanding of the zeitgeist and his integrity. According to the source, Attenborough was initially reluctant to include the plastic story in Blue Planet 2, worrying once again that it would be a turn-off. If that was the case, and senior BBC executives deny it, by the time the series was broadcast in 2017, Attenborough was fully behind the plastics episode. David really led on the plastics thing, talking about plastics before the series went out, said the producer Miles Barton. At 93, Attenborough is more in demand than ever. Susan, his daughter, keeps a watchful eye on him and tries in vain to scale back his speaking engagements and charitable commitments. He has never put his name to any commercial product. The BBC want him to narrate Planet Earth 3, but he will be 96 when the time comes. Meanwhile, he devotes most of his considerable stamina to appealing for radical action to tackle the climate crisis and biodiversity loss. In Poland, at the UN Climate Change Summit in 2018, he was chosen to represent the world's people in addressing leaders from almost 200 nations. At Davos in early 2019, he questioned the wisdom of perpetual economic growth. Only a madman or an economist would cling to this notion, he argued. 
Earlier this month, Attenborough launched Seven Worlds, One Planet with an exhausting round of interviews to journalists from six continents while a police helicopter buzzed over Extinction Rebellion protests on the streets of London. At the premiere, when I asked if he was comfortable about his film's inspiring Extinction Rebellion, he replied sharply, Extinction Rebellion doesn't have the monopoly of people who care about the planet. That's a section of people who care about the planet, but everybody should care about the planet. We're citizens of the planet. We have the dominance of it, and we ought to care about it. Attenborough has been supportive of school climate strikers and likes to suggest that the planet now belongs in younger hands. He remains visibly fascinated by all kinds of life and social change around him, but instinctively cleaves to the role of his lifetime as an interested observer, watching a new generation clamouring for environmental change. I've had my share of the platform. I'd be better off standing apart from it and trying to be as dispassionate as I can, he told me last week. I'm old, and they are young. They have their own techniques and their own ethos. It's their world, not mine, that's for sure. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.